Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, we look at the economy. Is it on the edge of the abyss or just taking a short-term holiday? We find out more about the compassionate conservative because it does seem to be an impossible combination of ideas. And we ask the question, is Labor in the doldrums or just waiting for the right opportunity to reveal itself? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Parliamentary Procedure Advisor to Boris Johnson. There seems to be a broad consensus that the Australian economy is on the nose. The markets are flat, we're currently in a per capita recession, as well as a retail recession. Economic growth in the past two quarters has been incredibly poor. The June quarter showed a GDP growth of just 0.4%, and the annual growth of 1.4% over the past 12 months has been the worst figure since 2001. Now, that's not to say that the economy won't improve, but the conditions are set for the worst economic performance in a generation. Now, I've been quite impressed by the Treasurer's ability, Josh Frydenberg, to deflect these poor figures by focusing on the first current account surplus in 44 years, a figure that does need to be managed, but it doesn't have a direct influence over the overall state of the economy. And he continues to blame Labor for this poor economic performance as well as sheeting the responsibility onto the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank does have an important role within the Australian economy, but it's the government that develops and implements monetary policies. And you'd have to say on evidence, these policies haven't worked. Labor hasn't been in office since 2013, and that's over six years ago. How long can the government keep apportioning the blame to others before the penny drops for the electorate and they realise the government is just not taking on any responsibility for its actions? It is incredible that after two terms and three prime ministers, they are still blaming Labor. One thing is is that if if they didn't have such a, a soft press, really, the Labor economic figures are always stronger. And in fact, Wayne Swan, and I don't say this as a Labor member, I say this as someone who's looked at the figures, Wayne Swan performed much better than his predecessors and much, much better than his successor. What wasn't really comprehended here by a lot of people is just how bad the uh, global financial crisis was and that Australia came through it with very little impact. We did not go into a recession and I think there are only four countries in the world that didn't and a couple of those were already in recession. It is hard to blame Labor on a close analysis of the figures. Of course, what they do is say, oh, look at all this money they spent. They just gave it away to everybody. And we used to have a surplus and now we don't, as if running a surplus is the only way to be a good money manager. If governments can afford debt and can manage debt, then that is is not a problem. That's something that doesn't go into how you manage. Now, there's been very little spending on substantial things. The spending on substantial things has tended to go into the pockets of a few, not being spread around to many things. I think Josh Frydenberg has to be very careful that he doesn't lose favour of the press, which could happen at any time. Being on side of the media, that's very, very important. But the most important thing politically is being on side with the electorate. Frydenberg claimed that Australia is in a sea of tranquility compared to the mess of Brexit and, well, any country would be at the moment, but he also trumpeted the news about 
economic growth of 2.6% over the past year, even though this is a natural increase through population growth, demographic change and immigration. And with stagnant wages, this 2.6% figure doesn't really mean very much economically. Now, as you know, politicians are in the business of highlighting the good news and deflecting the bad. But Josh Frydenberg is making references to the moon. He's drawing on figures that are either misleading or not relevant to the overall economic performance. Spinning the figures, bluff and bluster, can only get you so far. The economic reality always catches up with the rhetoric. And when the reality does catch up, the the effects can be quite vicious for a politician. Things like unemployment bite. You can hide low interest rates and you can hide a poor performing dollar. You can't hide unemployment. It's at 4% or 5% at the moment. And those are figures based on everyone in the workforce. It doesn't account for underemployment. And it doesn't account for people who've given up looking. The figures are, as uh, a few economists, Michael West, I think, being one of them, is higher, probably double what is being said. Things like tightening credit matter. And this is where you can't hide the figures anymore. There's a sense in which it's not a recession till the rich feel it. And I think they're starting to feel it. When you start to get the more well-off feeling unemployment, when the middle management gets cut, when senior retail gets cut, when trade jobs are cut, you'll have very little to hide behind. I guess then they'll start to blame global factors. Of course, global factors do come into it. There's only a certain amount that you can spin the figures or a certain amount of times that you can just keep paraphrasing the good figures and deflecting the bad. But when we're looking at overseas conditions and international concerns, GDP, and admittedly, that's not the only economic indicator of how an economy is travelling, but it's now ranked 23rd in the world in the OECD list, and that's out of 36 different countries. It's the worst ranking since 2003. Other indicators, such as unemployment levels, are at the worst level ever. There's a whole lot of factors that are coming into play here, and I did mention before that spin and bluster can only get you so far, and it's just a question of when that reality will end up catching up with the government. There's a sense in which they were lucky to win the election. That's not to take away from the campaigning, but it gave them an extra few months to be able to spin the notion that they were good economic management. That's a, a sense I mean luck. However, the, the, the luck is going to run out very quickly if it hasn't already. I don't know that Josh Frydenberg was quite ready to have such a senior position in government. I don't think he's surrounded by people terribly suited to their roles either. And I'm trying to be fair, but it's hard not to come to that conclusion. Well, it might not necessarily be just the personalities within the government. My feeling is that it's the ideological concern of the government, the, the way that they've been pushing through a particular agenda. There were tax cuts, reduction of penalty rates, more benefits to companies and corporations, lower wages, a budget surplus. These were all on the neoliberal agenda of this government going back to 2013. The electorate was told that these were important reforms that had to be implemented to stimulate the economy. But so far, it seems that these policies are on the verge of crashing the economy. A crashed economy helps the wealthy. There's a famous quote by the banker Rothschild. But he said the time to buy is when the blood is running in the street. You can make a lot of profit when prices crash and you sweep it all up and then you sell them when prices bump. 
You can only do that if you're very wealthy, though. It's within party donors' interests for a poor economy. You save on things like wages. You save on things like tax. It's quite advantageous to a few. We did talk about the overall performance of this government going back to 2013, but it also follows from their first pretty much an austerity budget in 2014, which knocked the economy off the axis. And my reading of it at that time was that this was a classic case of the neoliberal orthodoxy doing the exact opposite of its, its intended consequences. And government implements all, all of these policies that aren't working, then it starts looking at others to blame for their mistakes. The government was actually told by the Reserve Bank time and time and again, and by other many other economists as well, that other policies had to be implemented to stimulate the economy. But the government just did not listen. And it's easy to blame the Reserve Bank, and it's easy to blame everyone else. They were given this advice. No one is saying, well, things are bad. Of course, no government would. Maybe only Paul Keating admitted to a recession and justified that by saying, well, we had to have it to make sure that things didn't go too hot and we turned into a banana republic. He didn't quite say that, but that was the the thrust of it. We can't expect that a government would say, yes, it's a poor economy and it's our fault and we don't know what to do. But it's an economy that's not looking good and there's not a lot of solutions being posited. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Podcasts, listen in through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we have a good look at the Compassionate Conservative. In 1977, the American historian Douglas Wade published The Compassionate Touch, a book which looked at poverty levels in the Indian city of Kolkata and how the government at the time tackled endemic poverty, usually a process of harsh measures and the servitude to religious institutions created by the Catholic nun, Mother Teresa. Several years later, Wade's books and ideas started to permeate the halls of American conservatism with the belief that welfare provided by the state was destroying people's lives and the free market was the best solution for poor and disadvantaged people, even though Frederick Hayek, the doyen of free market philosophy, disputed this. The term compassionate conservative was then used by the Reagan administration in the early 1980s as one of its guiding principles on social policy. Compassionate conservatism is a dress-up for far-right-wing ideologues that despise any form of state support for people in need. It diminishes the rights of people and tries to achieve policy goals by implementing practices that are not in the public interest and benefit the private sector. George W. Bush also labelled himself as a compassionate conservative during the American elections in 2000. But it's a term that we've never really heard in Australia until now. It's that whole American model of how to be nationalist or how to be a patriot, let's be fair. It's wearing the Australian flag on your coat lapel from you know, a Chinese factory. It's putting your hand over your heart when the flag goes up and being absolutely looked at with complete bemusement by the people around you. It's using these phrases, and it even goes down to loosening gun laws. You know, the one thing that most people agreed with 
in the Howard years was the tightening of gun laws. There's now a group of people in that party who want to loosen them. It's an odd thing. And so to use this terminology, and you see it all the time in subtle ways. I see a certain type of uh, right-wing commentator use the term sidewalk, for example, instead of footpath. Use the term on the public dime. It doesn't mean anything in Australia where we don't have that type of currency. And I do understand the permeation of American culture and words and phrases going through the old trade routes and now they go through the internet. But this is different. This is a definite emulation of a certain type of American culture. They hate hip hop and they hated rock and roll and they hate movies they don't approve of, etc. But there's a certain type of right wing American thinking that they thoroughly approve of. And then this notion of compassionate. I'm all in favour for compassion. And from a conservative point of view, you could be compassionate, right? We pay you unemployment benefits. And as a part of that, you retrain or you do volunteer work or something like that. That I get. I, it's problematic. But I do get, you know, you dignity, earning your keep, building yourself back up. Those are all very conservative values. They're also liberal values and, and even radical values, but they fit within the conservative uh, wheelhouse. But I don't think it's about that. So it's a classic political marketing tool. Compassion is a term that's usually associated with the progressive side of politics, and conservatives have added the term to their own side to make particularly harsh and regressive policies sound more palatable and appealing to the public. It's a simple tactic, but it's also very misleading. And how far can we take this political marketing? Would it be okay to call the Prime Minister that supports these policies a compassionate fascist or even a benevolent mm. dictator? Using the term compassionate conservative, it's a classic political trick and it's used as an avenue to implement very harsh programs that would otherwise be very difficult to introduce. You know, the card, drug testing. I've seen probably 500 tweets on Twitter saying, why don't we drug test parliament? And journalists coming up and stating that a lot of the organisations, media organisations that are pushing drug testing have had, at least in the past, rampant drug cultures. It's a way of hiding contempt for the poor. It's a way of hiding contempt for refugees for non-desirable, in their view, immigration, in their view, not my view. It's a way of hiding behind a, a term that we should all aspire to, compassion. We should all aspire to be compassionate. But if you hide behind that term, you can be quite nasty. Well, it's also a question of where would it all end? Like, would it be, will it eventually apply to everyone? So you wake up in the morning, lean over, pick up a, a drug test, breathe into it or take a swab and then send it off to the government. Like, that's the logical conclusion of all of this process in 10 or 15 years that everyone in the entire community is drug tested. So it does have all these sinister overtones, but there's also a very strong relationship with religious beliefs. And it is a classic neoliberal ideology as well. As far as this recent iteration of things such as the injury card and drug testing for social security recipients, it, it does go back some time ago in, in Australia. It started off, you could argue that it started off with the intervention in the Northern Territory going back to 2007. But at an ACOS meeting in 2015 when he was treasurer, Scott Morrison said that welfare must become a good deal for private investors. We have to make it a good deal for the returns to be there and to attract capital. 
Now, this is classic neoliberal ideology going on here. So it's, it's a total reframing of the social capital and the provision of social capital, and it's mainly transferred from government over to private interests. Margaret Thatcher's There is No Such Thing as Society. You know, we don't help each other. The gatekeepers help, but they help at a cost because the only good business is a profitable business and the only way you can run anything is at a profit. Um, in New South Wales, we've seen the disaster of private roads, of private privatisation of hospital, of private schools. None of them have worked. You know, I think it's true in Victoria, everywhere else too, but having seen so many pointless roads that take years to build and the profits going into private hands, but the losses being absorbed by government, and it's been going on for since at least the Griner years in New South Wales, which is heading to 30 years, and of course since 75 federally it's failed it's absolutely failed for scott morrison to say that welfare providers have to be profitable i feel it was a terrible terrible thing and a complete misunderstanding of the point of everything but it does feed back to that classic neoliberal ideology of the state is not providing the services in the best way possible let's get the private sector to fund all of these processes that's what the attitude is and that's what the belief is and that's why in the face of all the evidence that suggests that this method does not work 2019 30, 40 years after it was sort of first talked about or implemented in other countries that are around the world, Australia is now having its go. Now, I guess the other question is, we did touch on this in our last episode, that the INJU trials, they've been trialled in five different locations around Australia. Now, it is on the verge of being spread nationally. In addition to that, the idea of drug testing, social security recipients as well. Now, this has been on the agenda for some time by this government. It was knocked back in the Senate during the last parliament, but they're reintroducing it again. It just depends on whether it is passed by the Senate. But if it is passed by the Senate and drug testing becomes a reality for social security recipients... It's going to be another Indu style of process again. There's going to be a private company that will manage all of the drug testing on behalf of the government. There'll be pathology companies, probably with strong links to the Liberal Party. Uh, There's a whole raft of issues that will come out of this, like who are the companies that are going to be doing the pathological tests or the swabs or the cutting of hair strands to see if someone's been using, using drugs. And then that brings up another issue of the incentives that are behind this as well. So we'll have a situation where private companies will be chasing down social security recipients to earn a profit. We've already seen it with the robo debt, where people are getting told that they owe money and thousands and thousands of dollars. The rank hypocrisy of the Prime Minister saying, oh, suicide is a major issue in the current climate, when some of those suicides have been from people getting a bill from Centrelink for five or $6,000 that they don't know how they've accrued it, why they've accrued it, and with no way of knowing how to settle it. I almost think it's a, as a way of selling off more of Centrelink to private enterprise. And so the Indu card, which is being slowly introduced, it looks like uh, Jackie Lambie will block it being spread further now, but that won't stop them. I think we can see a ho- expect a whole range of negative Jackie Lambie press over the next few weeks. And of course, she may change her mind. Well, we will find out this week whether 
this proposal gets uh, passed by the by the Senate. The other strong factor to take into account is that once these sorts of programs are set up, they're very, very difficult to undo. In the same sense that when Centrelink was essentially outsourced to a, a wide range of not-for-profit providers totally unassociated with the government, even when the Labor government did get back in to office in uh, 2007, between 2007 and 2013, they left that system alone because to undo it would involve a massive flow of funds. So that's the issue here. That's why it probably should be resisted as much as possible because once these things are in place, they are so difficult to retract, so difficult to remove. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we find out if the Labor Party has been missing in action or just hibernating. Albanese has been the leader of the Labor Party for just over three months, but there's a consensus forming that he's been lacklustre, travelling too close to the Liberal National Government on key policy matters, and not providing enough inspiration to the left of the Labor Party rank and file membership, which is where he comes from, and many from this part of the party are calling for him to be replaced. Under Albanese, Labor waved through all aspects of the coalition's tax package, including the third tranche for high income earners, welcomed back the coal industry with a vengeance up in Newcastle and Queensland, and made some very favourable noises about the government's proposal for their religious discrimination legislation. More recently, the Shadow Education Minister, Tanya Plibersek, has welcomed increased funding levels for private school education, even though before the last election she called it an educational slush fund. There's speculation that Labor has written off 2019 politically. They currently have an election review underway trying to find out where they went wrong in the 2019 election. And they seem to be in a holding pattern until this review is released. As we found out during the 2019 election, the electorate has a short-term memory and whatever is happening now will barely be remembered at the time of the next election, due in 2022. Labor seems keen to reinvent itself, but it seems like it's a reinvention in the image of the Liberal National Government. Is Labor selling its soul, or is this the type of pragmatism that's needed to plan a return to government? It's always tough being in opposition. Doesn't matter what party you are, it's always tough. And losing uh, the 2019 election, I think, was a terrible, terrible blow to Labor Party members in a way that maybe losing the 2013 one wasn't, or even the um, 2015, when Malcolm Turnbull clawed back with one seat. This was a comprehensive loss, and they'd run ostensibly a better campaign. And the government was scandal-ridden, it was lacking in competence, it was tired, and Labor lost. Now, I don't think you can point to just Bill Shorten for that. I think the dislike of, or the mistrust really of Bill, whether justified or not, it's a whole other podcast, was a factor. But I think now Labor is in a state of shock. And I think finding out what went wrong will be a good thing for them. 
Whether they come to the right conclusions is a whole other thing. A lot of this review will be sheeting blame around to everyone else but whoever's talking at the time. And it hasn't helped that in New South Wales, Labor haven't come out well out of ICAC. We can say there were 10 Liberal people, etc., etc., but that's not where the narrative went. There is one interesting factor that comes into all of this. Now, the leader of an opposition, just after they've lost an election campaign, they've never actually led that respective party back into government. It's just never happened. So Anthony Albanese is battling history at the moment. Now, that doesn't mean that that history can't be changed or that history can't be broken. But there's a number of issues going on here. Now, you mentioned the rank and file of the Labor Party before. Of course, they'd be quite shocked about not winning this election. Like every political party, the rank and file or the membership of that political party will be devastated when they don't win an election. After all, that's why they've become members. That's why they're part of the political movement. And as far as an MP is concerned, like you'd be devastated not being in government either because there's a massive difference between being in government and being in opposition. Like there's lack of resources. There's virtually no focus on the opposition. So we can understand all of these issues going on. But is it such a wise thing to do for the Labor Party to mimic whatever the Liberal National Government is doing? I think the phrase that Anthony Albanese is remembered for is the phrase fighting Tories. I mean, I think consolidation is good. I think a period of reflection is good. I think coming up with great policy is good. I suspect that that's not the answers they'll come. They'll go back to the small target where they'll lose again because the left has to inspire. The right just have to demonstrate steady hands, but the left has to inspire. And that's the way it is. It may not be fair. It may not be right. It may not be good, but there's no other way of doing it. Uh, actually, we can go back to 45 72, 83, 2007, they were all inspiring election campaigns as opposed to we are steady hands and we'll keep looking after you. As I said, I don't think that's necessarily fair or right, but that's the way it is. Instead of just seeming to agree, and of course, you're right when you say the electorate has fairly short memories. So you can do all this stuff in 2019, agree with it. And then when it all comes unstuck in 2021, you can say, well, look at what they've done. But Anthony Albanese has to hit the ground running. I think he should have started fighting more obviously, at least to start, even if it was on stuff that didn't matter so much while they consolidate and work out where they're going next. And perhaps that's the issue that has been missing, that there's a feeling amongst membership and a, to a lesser extent within the community that Labor hasn't been hitting the ground running. Politically speaking, politics ultimately is based around mathematics. It depends on who wins the, the most seats to form government. It seems like embracing coal in the way that they have been since they lost the election seems to be a sensible decision. There's coal communities that swung strongly against Labor in Queensland where they only hold six seats, but there's a limit to how pragmatic you can actually be and how closely you can mimic or replicate what a government is doing. Now, in the business world, businesses that offer identical products such as petrol, electricity or telephony, petrol is going to be the same wherever you purchase it, whether it's Caltex or Shell or BP. And product differentiation is achieved through slick marketing to create a point of difference. Now, I'm not sure how well politics can work in that particular way, but it seems that Labor is going down this path at the moment, trying to position itself as a replica of the LNP government and then hopefully eventually differentiate itself through personalities or marketing and media management. 
to me, this is what the Labor Party tried to achieve under Kim Beasley between 1996 and 2001, but ultimately failed, especially on issues of border security and asylum seeker policy. On, on that particular occasion, the electorate said, thanks, we can see what you're doing, that you're trying hard to be like the government, but we'll go for the real thing. And they voted back in the Howard government. It does get back to what the electorate wants. If, they, if the electorate does decide, yes, we do want harsh right-wing policies, they'll vote for the party that delivers that rather than the party that pretends to believe those policies. And I think that's what the key issue is for the Labor Party in Albanese at the moment. You did mention before that it's 2019. The next election is due in 2022. That's still three years away. So there's a long way to travel before the next election, but it doesn't seem to be quite clicking for the Labor Party at the moment. You can never win. <laughs> I'm a bit surprised that the Labor Party, and and again, of course, perhaps they have, it's very hard for any opposition to get media airtime. But Peter Dutton appearing on a car commercial, I was flabbergasted. And then it turned out that the owner of the car company is his brother-in-law's friend or something and is a far right wing he was uh, had the hand signal the white supremacy hand signal in a, in a photo and it just baffles me that this is tolerated also as labor leader and as liberal leader too you have to balance six states each state has three factions of varying influence each faction has conflicting sections within that faction and it is this plate spinning balancing act of trying to get as many people on your side as you possibly can and it's very quickly and very easily lost hopefully Albanese has a better team than say Julia Gillard or Kevin Rudd both of whom were brought down by much lesser people it wasn't just the fault of the parties but a bit more cohesive teamwork would have helped both leaders solidify their position. Hopefully a lot of the egos involved in that have been removed and certainly all the major ones have gone now. I am hoping that there's a long-term plan here, but we don't know what it is yet. Now, after the last election, the polling companies had an absolute disaster. Most of the polling companies haven't been putting out any polls at all. And that's over three months ago now, since the last election. But News Poll has been the only polling company to have the courage to come out and publish some polls. Now, they've published two since the last election, and it's pretty much the same as the election result. The Liberal National Party is 51%. The Labor Party is 49% on the two-party preferred voting pattern. As I mentioned before, there's not much trust in political polling at the moment. I don't know what they can actually do to retrieve the situation for themselves, but these are the two polls that we've got at the moment. It just shows that not much has changed since the, the last election. I guess as far as the Labor Party is concerned, they're probably looking at this whole process and thinking, we've just had this bad election loss. Uh, all of our MPs are probably sitting through quite a few therapy sessions to work out what happened and what they can do to deal with this current situation. It's, it's probably a process where Labor is still in a holding pattern. They're waiting for its election review to be completed. This process of just going along with whatever the government is doing, it's probably just trying to make it as easy as possible for itself and then work out what happens towards the end of this year and then set up a new mode of thinking for 2020 and beyond. I don't know that the country can afford another term of this particular government. Of course, the Liberal Party uh, may decide to reform itself and clean everyone out and bring in more capable people. That's generally job best done in opposition, of course. But again, it's something I'm glad I'm not in charge of at the moment. 
That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to give the program a five-star rating or a review. It helps other listeners find the program. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.